Fantastic. Thank you, Ian. Good morning. Good morning. My name's Charlie. I'm one of the ministers here, and it's really good to be with you this morning. We are making our way through the book of Daniel. It's good, isn't it? It's a great book. Um, Some fantastic stories of God's faithfulness. So we started in chapter one, predictably, where the challenge is assimilation, not confrontation. We move on to chapter 2, which Andy covered for us last week, which was about revelation and wisdom in the place of exile. And today we are into chapter 3. It's not a difficult quiz. What do these things have in common? Pressure. Yes, Daniel 3 is about life under pressure, how to live well under pressure. You know, um, people tell us that we, are, we give of our best when we are under just the right amount of pressure. Not too much so that it crushes us, but just a bit to stretch us and draw us forward. That is how we flourish. That is how we grow. And yet most of us spend our lives desperately trying to avoid pressure. Daniel is about how to live well in exile, how to live well under pressure. It's what Gerard Kelly in his book Stretch that I've used as an outline for this sermon series calls an elastic faith. Sometimes we are called to have an elastic faith by which he means a faith that is stretched but not broken by adversity. Uh, One definition of elastic I looked up included the phrase capable of expanding to include much. I don't know if you've ever seen the aftermath of an earthquake But it's those buildings that could flex, that had some elasticity in them, that could sway with the shaking ground that remains standing. It's the rigid buildings that fall. And I'm trying to think of a good illustration to start the sermon with, a good illustration of elasticity. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of Helen Parr. No, we've not heard the story of Helen Parr better known as Elastigirl, from The Incredibles. Yes, I do know it's a cartoon. You see, um, Helen Parr juggles the kids, runs the house, manages her midlife crisis, and just when you think she has no more to give, she becomes Elastigirl and saves the world. I wonder if they modelled her on Sarah. Uh, There's one moment in in the, the, the cartoon where she turns to the camera and and looks at the camera and says, what? Leave saving the world to the men? I don't think so. (laughs) What's interesting about the character of Helen Parr is, is obviously it's a play. She's elastic. She stretches, physically stretches to perform incredible feats. But also, it's her character that is elastic. It's flexible. She has an elasticity of spirit And when the family are in trouble, she is the one who responds and she has the capacity to meet new challenges. I guess these days we might call it resilience. And it's a prominent theme in the Bible that God allows adversity in order to stretch us. To avoid adversity altogether is to avoid the very thing that enables us to grow. In Daniel chapter 3, the spotlight is shifted slightly off Daniel onto his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Although Daniel is still in the background, because you may remember at the end of chapter 2, 
Uh, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is so impressed with Daniel's ability, Yahweh's ability to interpret the dream through Daniel, that he offers him a promotion. And Daniel says, great, please, but please promote my three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as well. They are responding to Daniel's leadership, and it is that that puts them into the direct line of fire. Uh, they could have said no and just settled for an easy, quiet life in Babylon, watching Babylonian TV and whiling the evenings away. Okay, maybe not, but you get the idea. They responded to Daniel's challenge, and that brought them into immediate conflict with the king, as we see today. So let's pick up the story from Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, six cubits wide, and set it on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Then the herald proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language. This is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of lots of instruments, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing fire. Uh, most scholars think that there's about 19 years between the ends of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar has finished the Jewish wars and the Syrian wars. And it's probably to celebrate these victories and using the spoils of war, the gold that he collected, that this statue is put up. A statue in his honour, probably gold-plated rather than solid gold. But either way, King Nebuchadnezzar is not happy with being king alone. At this point, he feels he's justified in being worshipped as a god. 2,600 years later, and there's a few things I think we can pick up from Nebuchadnezzar. The world still creates larger-than-life images for me to worship. They might be film stars. They might be rock stars. They might be sports stars. But we see them larger than life on our TV screens, in our newspapers, in the cinema. And we still decorate them with gold. People still worship gold. Or we worship beauty. Or we worship wealth. Or we worship success or pleasure, pleasure or fame or power or popularity. The world still creates larger-than-life images for me to worship. And the second thing is, just like Nebuchadnezzar, I am tempted to create a false image of myself in order to impress others. We do, don't we? I have a confession. That delicious-looking bowl of aubergine and parmesan, parmigiano something or other, that I made in 2016. I took a photograph of it and I put it on Facebook. <laughs> I said, it's been a stressful week, we're enjoying this, a nice glass of Chardonnay, parmigiano, yeah, whatever it's called. What I have to own up, and I thought about it at the time as I did it, is that photograph is from the cookbook. <laughs> Mine was in the oven cooking at that point, and I have to say it looked every bit as delicious. But I was kicking around in the kitchen on Facebook, waiting for it to cook, laying the table. 
And then when the comments begin to, began to come back in, I think 36-odd likes, we, you know how it works on Facebook. Looks delicious, could you cook one for me? I'm sort of inside going, do I own up? <laughs> do I own up? There you are, I've confessed my sin. The images we put on Facebook, the images we put on Instagram, they're never without makeup. We present a certain image of ourselves because we want people to like us. You know, these days you can hire an image consultant. Character has been replaced by image. Now, I don't mean just celebrating things that are good in your life. There is some stuff on Facebook that is very good about that. But somehow trying to present something that you're not or trying to be somebody that you're not. It's just so unhealthy. Well, at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Yes, they were sucking up to him. Your majesty has issued a decree, but there are some Jews you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you'd set up. I wonder what it is that causes them to do this. Maybe they'd spotted an opportunity to get one over on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they, they suck up to the king and report them to him. Always be cautious of people that use too much flattery in the opening of their sentences. Oh, great king, may you live forever. Watch for the motives. And I wonder what the motives are. Could it be simply racism? These are foreigners who have, who have risen to a position of power in their land. Could it be jealousy? Or could they be going for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego while Daniel is not around? They're trying to pick off his friends. Either way, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar says to them, is it true? He gives them a second chance. If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will it be able to rescue you from my hand? It's that last line, isn't it? Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Nebuchadnezzar is throwing a direct challenge to Yahweh and to their faith. And for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego... This has become a line in the sand. It is one that they will not cross. They'll do as the king says. They'll serve him. They'll serve in his country. They'll do his best for them. But they will not cross the line and worship him as God. Because it simply contradicts the first two of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, the first two of the Ten Commandments read, You shall have no other gods before me, number one. And number two, you shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven or above the, or heaven above or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them, or worship them. They know this. And to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue would immediately break the first of the two commandments. So they refuse. And I think this next couple of verses is central to this story. This is where the key to the story lies. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, then the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, 
and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Just a couple of thoughts. We do not need to defend ourselves. You know, you do not need to attend every argument you're invited to. You do not need to attend every argument you're invited to. Sometimes it's okay to say, I don't need to defend myself in this situation. And that is what they do. And there are three things I think we can draw from this. The first is, well, it's a miracle that they stand up for God in the first place. Because at this time in Jewish history, there's no formulated view of an afterlife, of a resurrection. It's still all forming. There's no developed idea of reward, and yet they still choose to stand. They won't bow the knee, they won't apologise, and they confess allegiance to God. They testify to God's ability. But even if he is not, then they still won't bow. They have an even if God does not faith. And it's at this point that they've won. It is with that statement that they have defeated King Nebuchadnezzar. Because no longer is it based on the outcome. Their faith is not based on the outcome. It is based somewhere else. Uh, And it's natural, and I do it. And I know there are lots of people, and I've met lots of people, whose faith is based on the outcome. If God does this, then I will do that. Well, I've done all this for you, God, so why won't you do that? And that becomes a business transaction. This is faith with integrity. This is doing the right thing, even if it costs you. It's doing the right thing anyway. How many of you have been in a situation where you've had to do that? Where you've thought, I can't control the outcome here. And I don't know what the outcome is going to be. But I know that the right thing demands that I do this. Have you had situations like that in your life? I know I have. I felt I, I can do no other. And it's not dependent on the outcome at that point. But it is dependent on who God is and integrity. This is an even if faith that they are professing. And the next thing is doing the right thing will always make some people angry. You know, we, uh, we often think, don't we, if I can just get this perfectly right, then everybody will be happy. Sadly, it doesn't work like that. Jesus was perfect, and they still tried to crucify, well, they still crucified him. There will always be people that won't agree with you. And sometimes even doing the right thing makes people angry and Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and his attitude towards them changed he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace one translation includes to bind them tightly Uh, He wants the the fire heated hotter. He wants the strongest soldiers and he wants the ropes as tight as they can go. This is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's spinal tap moment. 
He wants everything turned up to 11. I wonder whether he's secretly insecure. I wonder if he remembers Daniel. I'm I'm reading this into the text. It's the Jewish tradition of Midrash. Just dance with me for a bit. But I wonder if he remembers Daniel and he remembers God's faithfulness through Daniel and the dream that was interpreted. And he's a bit concerned now. What happens if God does save Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? So let's, let's turn it all up extra hot just to make extra sure. You know, sometimes when somebody reacts to you like that, it's because of their insecurities and you've pushed a button and you've triggered something. Maybe a doubt that they have, maybe an insecurity that they have. Where do we get this idea that actually to be a Christian means you shouldn't struggle or suffer with anything? Where does this idea of a prosperity gospel come from? The Bible says we will face challenge, we will face pressure, we will face trouble. John 16.33 says, in this world you will have trouble. Officially the worst selling Christian fridge magnet in history. We don't get to avoid the fire. But there are a few things about the fire I think we can draw encouragement from. Because Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Uh, Many theologians, many commentators, many scholars would recognise that fourth person in the fire as the presence of Jesus. Christ among them, a theophany, a Christophany, Christ joining them in the trial. In this story, God is with them right in the middle of the furnace. And God is with you in the fire. That for me is one of the central and most important truths of the Christian faith. We are often not spared the fire. We are not spared the trials and difficulties of life that everyone else experiences around us. But as a Christian, you have the promise that God is with you through the fire. The wise and foolish builders, the one that built his his house upon the rock and the one that built his house upon the sand, the rain fell on both of them. The rain falls on the righteous and the wicked alike. But the promise of God is that he is with you. And that, for me, is one of the great truths of this story. It's why we teach this story to our children in Sunday school, along with the other ones. Because at the heart of this story is a picture of a God who is with us in the fire. Secondly, and I have to admit, I think this one is slightly tenuous, but I'm going to go with it. Some commentators suggest that the clothing that they were wearing, it said in verse 22, I didn't read it out to you, but it said these men were wearing robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes and they were bound and thrown into the furnace. Several commentators suggest that these were their Sunday best. The turban, the trousers, the robes, they got dressed up for this as they were bound and thrown into the furnace. Now, they were dressed for worship Now, what I I don't mean to imply some kind of false, weird joy that we're supposed to muster up as Christians. Do you know know that kind of feeling? Oh, I burnt the toast this morning. Praise the Lord. (laughs) 
I crashed my car last Wednesday, praise the Lord. I'm not talking about that kind of false nonsense. There is no need to pretend and to call what is good bad and what is bad good. Let's be honest, people. I was, I was privileged enough last week. I wasn't here because I was speaking at Tunbridge Baptist Church for Neil. And they had a special weekend focusing on mental health. And I was speaking in the morning and then the evening was a guy called Simon Thomas, a Blue Peter presenter and Sky Sports presenter. He shared his story in the afternoon. What was fascinating about hearing Simon share his story is he is currently in the middle of it and going through it. Every other time I'd heard someone